This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Yes, welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Our guest today is one of our greatest ever boxers, Danny Green. Uh, Danny, welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories. Uh, g'day, Mark. Um, yeah, thanks very much for having me on, buddy. I um, I appreciate uh, the thought that you think I can be inspiring. I was inspiring, mate, so thank you. Well, I think you're up and about, mate. Every time I've seen you since I've started seeing you, which is over 20 years ago now at the Sydney Olympics, I think uh, always on the move, always trying to achieve something. I think that's inspirational within itself. Con- congratulations on your career, but tell us, what's keeping you busy these days? Um, thanks, Mark. Uh, I've, I've got um, a fair bit going on. I've got um, uh, a, a chain of gyms around the country. We're actually around the world now. Um, we've, it's called U-Box. Um, it's boxing and strength, so it's a it's a it's a fitness routine based around what I did whilst I was training in my boxing career. So not so much the sparring and the actual fighting, but more the fitness, the strength and conditioning, and the boxing skill side. So. Um, we've got 86 stores open around Australia. We've got seven New Zealand, two in Singapore, third one in Singapore opening soon. We're just about to launch in Dublin and Manchester. They'll be open the two one, and the UK will be open within a month. And we've just secured the license in New York, um, in the United States, which is a massive market for us. And we just signed off on a big deal with a, a, a Japanese group called Prova over there um, for 150 gyms there in the next 10 years, and the UK will be at 250 gyms over the next 10 years as well. So um, it's growing fast, but uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long, uh, slow burn up until now, but things are just starting to hit their straps now and take off. And I've also got a, another gym in Western Australia in Perth called Green Zone Fitness in, at Warwick Shopping Centre. And among other things, mate, I'm, <clears throat> my, my daughter's 21, my boy's uh, 15 now, and he, um, he loves the sport of boxing, and he's into surfing, and, and he's, you know, he's... he's Busy working, and, and my daughter's, um, you know, she's working down here where we are, and she's, um, she wants, to, she says she wants to be a fighter, and, and, and she was a very, very capable swimmer. So I've got my hands full with my family and my kids, and um, with work, and uh, trying to get as much surfing as I can. And I, I turned 50 on, on, on the 9th of March, so uh, I'm just trying to, um, you know, stay fit, stay healthy, and keep as young as I, as, as I possibly can for as long as I possibly can, mate. I did notice that date of birth, Danny, when I was doing some research for the interview, and uh, uh, I wish you a happy birthday for that. Um, don't worry, mate. 50's okay. I'm uh, closing in on 60, so uh, you're going all right. Hey, let's go. Oh, you're doing, you're doing well, Mark, for 60, and, and, and people say, oh, are you, are you spewing about 10 or 50? No, I'm, I'm very happy. It's a, I'm having a party just to, to spend with my family and, and some close mates, but uh, for me, it's you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and very happy and blessed to be able to get to 50. Tell us about growing up. Where where did you grow up? I grew up in. I was born in Perth. Uh, my father um, and mother were um, on the farm uh, in the wheat belt um, back in the day. Dad was um, a, a share farmer, wheat and sheep, and unfortunately um, they had uh, a fair bit of trouble with drought, as all farmers run into. Unfortunately, so he came to the city and then started working at uh, Hungry Jack's in, in Lou and then got a job there and worked his way up the chain and became uh, assistant manager, then store manager, then district manager, then state manager, then became um, operational manager. And he wasn't educated. Dad left school at 15. He, both his parents were, were passed away when he was 15. He had 11 or 10 other brothers and sisters and they all looked out for each other. So he moved back to the farm and, and, and stayed in the farm. And so 
he, for a guy who wasn't um, formally educated as far as university goes and, and finishing schooling goes, he held a, a very um, you know, prominent position um, in, in, a, in, a, in a food chain in, in a large company. But he had a lot of common sense. He was a very hard worker, my father, and um, you know he commanded a lot of respect because of the way he treated people, treated his employees. He was firm, but he was very, very fair and always looked out for his employees and, and tried to care for them and, and, and guide them on the way. So, uh, you know, I try to take as much from, from what my father taught me. But um, he came to the city early. So I grew up in Perth and we moved to Adelaide for six years because um, the old boy got transported, transferred over there for work. We came back when I was about eight years old and, and grew up in, in Doubleview. Surfing the beaches of Scarborough and started doing karate when I was about 12 years old and with my brother and, and, and really fell in love with that. And But I always wanted to be a boxer, Mark. I always looked at, at the boxers on TV. as you see Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Tommy the, the Hitman Hearns, my favourite. used to see them on TV in the press conferences and then the weigh-ins and they'd be in impeccable physical condition and then put on these immense displays of... of, of Force, power, courage, skill, bravery, finesse, it was all there. I was like, man, I want to do that. But I didn't actually realise I'd gravitate towards it. But as time went by, I got closer and closer to it. And then my father worked with a man by the name of Patrick De Valeres. He was uh, he emigrated from Burma with his family and his brother Peter and their family back in the day, back late 69 or 97. And Pat was in line for a job at Hungry Jacks at Inalut. And there was um, a, a big line for work there for an application that had been put in the paper and it was a pretty lean time so a lot of people looking for jobs and the old man had to walk out his manager and kind of tell people hey I'm sorry the, the interview's over um, for this week but more coming up in the future keep your eye out and he saw Pat and Peter two little Burmese fellas and he thought to himself wow they look like they look like they'd be hard workers hey fellas you know, come have a chat and they came inside and then got the job at Hungry Jacks and Dad and Pat became very close friends so close in fact that Pat was holding my father's hand with my family in the room when the old man took his last breath because Pat was a registered nurse and a registered nurse as well and him and Dad were very close. And I had my first boxing session with Pat when I was 18 years old. He came to take my brother, who was a pretty good footballer for Claremont and um, had been drafted to the West Coast Eagles and he wanted to, um, unfortunately, to play a game. But he had a very good career at Claremont and he was a, a very good footballer and, and uh, he started boxing. Pat and I joined in the same that, that afternoon on, on our front lawn uh, for for a session, and Pat and I clicked instantly and never looked back. And that's where my, my boxing career started. I was about 18 years old, and my first boxing fight. I had a couple of kickboxing fights, but I was really interested in boxing. And once I had my first boxing fight out at Midland Town Hall, um, uh, I never looked back. Were you good from the start, or were you a work in progress? <laughs> good question, Mark. I don't really know. Like looking back now, um, I never thought I was any good. You know, I just I was just a battler. I was a tryer. I could punch hard. I, I loved to mix it up. I loved to get in there and fight. And I wanted to prove myself because I was, you know, young and skinny, and everyone else was big and strong and you know tough looking. I was just this you know wispy little surfer who was um you know built like a, a greyhound. But I was always very very tenacious and determined. And and I look back now and I was a lot better and what I gave myself credit for back when I first started because I was continually beating guys and, and inspiring. I was holding my own. I was beating guys that were, you know, I was dominating guys and inspiring that were very experienced and I really just was a beginner. And so looking back now, um, yeah, I was, I guess I was pretty good, but I didn't realise it back then. I didn't think it back then. And no one else really thought it back then. But when I look back now and have the career that I've had, I obviously was much better than I gave myself credit for at the start. So you were 
picked in a Commonwealth Games team, but you got injured, uh, broke your hand, and then you got to represent Australia at the Sydney Olympics. What was it like representing your country at a home Olympics? Yeah, it was just it was sensational. I won the Australian title in 1997 over in Adelaide, and then um, that got me onto the uh, Oceanic team for Australia. And then I was the uh, the Oceanic champion and, and Australian champion. And in 1998, I actually went over to Kuala Lumpur and, and won my first fight, but broke my hand in the first fight, so I couldn't continue the Commonwealth Games. So my my campaign was over. And then um, stayed amateur and, and, and made my way into the Australian boxing team on the Oceania Games, which was the trials that you had to win. You had to win that tournament to get selected um, for Australian Olympics. So I won that tournament. And um, I remember my father and my then girlfriend, my wife now, Nina, um, were there with me. And, and, and Pat um, was there and um, my good mate Brooks, he was there. And I remember being on the podium and getting a gold medal put around my neck and my Australian tracksuit on and knowing that this is my this is the thing that I've been dreaming about for so long. I'm actually going to be representing Australia at the Olympic Games. I was like, I'm an Olympian now. Or I wasn't then, but I, I'd just been chosen to be an Olympian. And it was a feeling that I'll never forget. Mike. I, I probably couldn't be, even uh, describe it because it was just such elation and jubilation and such satisfaction and such, such a high from a young kid who dreamed of doing this and dreamed of so many kids dream of going to the big games and as a boxer that was even be, a, a bigger moment for me and like man I'm, I'm going to the big games it was it was just such a rush and I, I, I don't think I slept for a couple of days I was just on a natural high. You win your first bout at the Olympics you beat Brazilian Lord Alino Barros with a referee stop contest in the fourth round and then in the second bout you run into a bloke you later described as your toughest ever opponent, uh, a Russian named Alexander Lebziak. Yeah, my first fight against Leonard Barris was was a, was a really memorable one because not many Australian fighters win fights at the end of the games, Mark. You know, as as amateurs, we're very inexperienced because we just don't have the the pull to draw from as far as competitors go. So the less competitors, the less experience you're going to gain. The the the, the you know the the not as you're not going to be as good a fighter compared to other countries that have such a massive pool to draw from and have such strong competition. So Australians don't really win much. So to beat Brazil was a big thing. It was a young, tough bloke, Laudolino Barris was his name. And funny thing, about a month ago, he reached out to me um, on Instagram and we reconnected and we've been going back and forth talking ever since. So it's been a magic thing to be able to reconnect with a bloke that I fought when I was, you know, back in the Olympic Games in the year 2000. So I won that fight and then Drew Lebjack, who was the current world champion, he was a three-time Olympian, he put our middleweight representative um, in hospital the the Olympics before in, in Atlanta. Justin Crawford he knocked him out badly, and it was it was a very very you know it was a very very big ask for me. But I, I had nothing to lose, and that was my attitude always when I was fighting. Like if I got nothing to lose, I was more nervous, Mark, fighting guys that were supposed to beat me and hurt me than I was guys that I was supposed to win against because the pressure was on me. But against Lebjack, there was no pressure. You know, 50 fights that day, I was the only Australian to fight on that day and I was the last fight of the night. So the Aussies had been waiting all day for me to come out. They didn't know who I was. They just knew I was this Australian bloke fighting this tank sergeant from the Russian military who was also a world champion and an extremely good boxer, probably the, probably the most decorated fighter at that Games. And so, um, yeah, first round was going really well. I hit him with a couple of really nice right hands. Unfortunately, I broke my um, two metacarpals, metatarsals in my right hand. When I, when I struck him, I punched him beautifully in the cheekbone. He would have dropped a lot of people, would have wobbled him, put a lot some guys, some good fighters out. But he just kind of shook his head and went. I was kind of, I was kind of like, oh, gee, I've just pissed that guy off. <laughs> and then um, was leading after round one and round two. I actually dropped him in round two with a beautiful straight left. 
Um, and but unfortunately, he broke my nose in round two, and he started taking over because I wasn't able to use my right hand because it was very badly broken. And then uh, round three, again, the same thing continued. He started getting on top in points, and then round four, the referee actually the, the, he got so far ahead on points that they stopped the contest. That's a, that was the rules back then. To get too far ahead, they stopped the contest. But I was pushing him the whole way. I was pushing him back. I was pushing him round. I only had one hand, a really badly busted hand and nose. Face full of blood, and my nose was, you know, wonky. But I just kept going and going and going. And when I when I lost that fight, I realised that I had what it took to be a professional because I just pushed the, the the. And he won the gold medal after me. He fought three more times and won fairly convincingly each fight. So he was a world champion, the gold medalist, and I pushed him all the way. And I only had forty three fights. So I was a pup in the sport, so yeah, I kind of got what it takes to go pro. I think so. That was the catalyst for me. Um, you know, really making my mind up uh, to turn professional. But as an experience, the Olympic Games was something that I'll never forget. And, um, you know, it was just such a, a momentous occasion, especially particularly being in Australia. It was just, it was just magic, Mark. We'll take a break and that. We'll come back and talk about Danny's professional career. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. It's brought to you by Baron O'Day. Don't miss out on the little things because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Danny Green, the former world boxing champion and uh, certainly a person that's had a massive influence on not just um, WA sports people but the WA community with his work in other areas uh, outside of boxing as well. Danny, you finish your amateur career with a record of 35-8 and eight and a 16-6 international record, which is, which is pretty impressive. Um, you turn professional at the age of 28. Tell us about that decision. Was it a big one or was it one that came automatically to you? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Mike. It wasn't. It wasn't an easy decision because uh, I, I was heavily influenced, you know, by my father and my parents and my mother. I was very, very blessed to have, you know, uh, loving, supportive, caring parents growing up, which I know a lot of people haven't had the the blessings of having. So uh, I was very, very in tune with my father and what he, you know, what he kind of what he said and when he spoke, we we, we listened. Well, most sorry, I shouldn't say that because I was a bit of a tear away, but um, I didn't listen all the time. But I, I listened to the good stuff. <laughs> And he said, um, I don't really want you going pro, it's a tough sport, um, but he didn't, he, he'd kind of grown to know the sport with us as well, so um, with me moving along as well, so he realised that I kind of knew what I was doing, I had what I took, um, and I was an extremely hard worker, so I think I, I gave my old man faith in me turning pro and, and him being positive about it because I was a very, very hard worker. So it, I never cut any corners, um, you know, I, I dotted the I's, crossed the T's, I really, really, you know, applied myself as a as a professional when I was when I was an amateur. So, um, you know, the the decision said, you know, he said, look, man, if I if you go pro, and um, you know, he if if he said no, I was going to go pro anyway. So yeah. I just wanted my dad to to support it, so we're on the same page. Um, and he said, if you go pro, and I think you know, one down the down the track, you're getting punchy, you, 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 your desires waning, or you you know, you're not seeing the punches coming on, and you can't see it. And I say, hey, mate, that's enough. Then we shook on it. We agreed. We had a handshake agreement. That that's it. And so turned pro and um, yeah, moved to Sydney. Packed up. I had an offer because I'd been over. Jeff Henning knew who I was. I'd trained at his gym throughout the years as an amateur. 
sparring some of his boys and I actually knocked a couple out so he knew that I had a good punch and you know I was pretty capable so when the Olympics was over he made the offer before the Olympics um, I, I went to the games he made the offer if you want to turn pro um, you know there's a position in the, for you in the gym here Granny so turned pro moved everything over to Sydney and then I went over there and um, we pretty much made Chloe not long after um, you know we got there because I always wanted to have kids and didn't really have much and it's like you know we, we were always preparing, you know, saying to ourselves, we need to prepare for a kid. We haven't got any. Let's wait till we're stable. Let's wait till we're able to do it, you know, financially in a position. And I think that was just our way of, of, of keeping the fear from, um, you know, keeping the fear off because we were worried and weren't, didn't know what was going on. I was like, everyone has babies and no one really, you know, everyone, so many people out there have babies and they haven't got any. Let's, you know, let's start a family. We're just scared. Let's do it. So we made Chloe at the same time with, uh, that, um, you know, uh, before I had my first professional fight. So it was a fair bit of pressure. Um, but, I just couldn't wait to get in there, and, and I was in a gym where there was a lot of very hard men, a lot of you know consummate professionals, um, pretty, 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 uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, very colourful figures inside the gym, and and that I was training with and training around. So you you, you know you're in the mix very very early on, and then being around Jeff, obviously he'd, you know been a, a multiple world champion and, and knew everything about the game, so I was thrust into the spotlight fairly very fairly early. Uh, and then started, you know, dominating in, in my division. Started bowling everyone over, and then that's when the, the rivalry with Anthony Mundine came about. After maybe less than a year of me being professional, I was in the spotlight already because of the the rivalry that had begun with Anthony Mundine, started by him. So your first fight against Waka Kolavusu in Sydney in two thousand and one, you earned twelve hundred dollars for. So I'd imagine money would have been reasonably tight. I, I was stoked, you know. I was like, "Yeah, it's, 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 I was, I, Mark. I would have done it for free because I just wanted to be a professional fighter." My, my initial motivation for turning pro, and I, I don't even publicly stated this. Um, my initial motivation for turning pro was, "Yeah, I wanted to win a world championship. That'd be the best to be a world champion. That's every fighter's dream." But it just seemed so far off. Um, was to earn around thirty or forty k. If I could earn thirty or forty k and save that up. And if the boxing didn't work out, I could at least come back home and then um, have a deposit for a house and then fall back on my trade. I was an apprentice carpenter um, by trade. And anyone who knows me um, will laugh at that. But I actually finished my trade and, and got my ticket And because um, I'm fairly ordinary when it comes to uh, being a carpenter, Mark. <laughs> um, and so that was my motivation was to, to earn 30 or 40K, save that up, come home, and if boxing didn't work out, I could lean back on my apprentice on my, on my trade and, and, and pay my house off that way. So that was really the motivation that really kick started it. But to be a world champion was obviously the the big pipe dream. And looking back now, um, you know, I'm my first fight year and twelve hundred bucks, I was like, Man, I'm in the money, it was unreal, I was so stoked. But I was just happy that I got the victory and was able to move on and upwards to the next fight and continue going and it wasn't too long before I hit a uh, hit, hit my straps and, and a fair bit of momentum started coming along with with the rivalry with Anthony Mundine because he's such an outspoken figure and such a, a larger-than-life figure and he rubbed people the wrong way. And, and he began the rivalry by saying some silly comments about me and I just returned fire and said, yeah, let's fight. All I said was, let's fight, let's get on. So I was bowling everyone over in the division and he was, and no one really knew who I was. And he was, I was knocking guys out that were taking in the distance. And I was knocking them out in one or two rounds and he was going the distance with them and then, you know, it made sense I me. Mean, you know the media better than anyone, Mark. Uh, he was he was a Muslim uh, Aboriginal, and you know I was a, a, a so-called you know a Christian white guy, 
So you had that perfect storm as far as a rivalry goes for the media to play it out. And I'm an atheist, so um, I don't know where that come from. And uh, it, it kind of just went from there, mate. It, it kind of just blew up and took off. And I was also, you know, beating the guys that were put in front of me and beating them convincingly. You did. You started off in uh, like a hurricane, if you like. You win your first 16 fights by knockout. You actually earn yourself a title fight with Germany's super middleweight world champion, Marcus Bayer, at the Nürburgring. And that was in August 2003. We'll come back and talk about that because obviously there's a little bit to talk through that as well. But um, this is Inspiring Sports Stories. It's brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little things because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And in Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day, today we're talking to boxing champion Danny Green. Danny, we've, we've reached a point telling your story where we're up to that fateful fight at the Nürburgring against Marcus Bayer. Talk us, talk us through that one. Yeah, I, I, I earned my position um, in the top 15 in the WBC uh, rank. And so when you get to that position, the world champion can, in, in the, in the, if you want, let's say I win the world title, within 12 months, I have to defend against the number one ranked opponent. So the, the guy who's number one behind me, within 12 months, I have to fight him. But in the meantime, I can choose someone else in the top 15 to fight, to defend my world title against. I can defend it against the number three. I can defend it against the number 12. I can defend it against the number nine. Depends. And it's up to the promoter who they choose. So they chose me because they thought, this Aussie's got 16-0, and 0, all KOs. You know, he's never been past eight rounds. It'll be an exciting fight. He's got a good story as far as, you know, the knockout out. We'll bring him over to Germany. We'll take him in the deep water and then get the decision. That was their, that was their I think, their theory behind choosing me. Uh, and then I kind of didn't really come to the party with what they wanted because... I was always, you know, I was a very, very determined, you know, competitor. And so because he was a two-time champion, he was a WBC super middleweight world champion times two. I, I didn't care about that. I just had a guy in front of me that I, I thought, I looked at him, I sized him up. We, we, when we shook hands for the first time, the cameras were everywhere in Germany. I pulled him really close to my chest and put his hand on my heart. Like, we're, like when I was shaking his hand, his hand went natural on, on my chest. It was on my heart. And I, I reckon he could feel my heart rate was very slow and calm and I could tell he was very nervous. He tried to pull away and I kept him in because I wasn't being arrogant. I was just like letting him know because it's a fight, Mark. You know? I don't, yep. People go, well, you know, what, what, why, do you, why do you get so upset? Why, why is there so much animosity? Well, at the end of the day, when you break it down, it's a fight. And if you've ever been in a fight, you've got to have that aggression and that animosity towards your opponent. You've got to do it. But as a professional fighter, you've got to be calm and calculated in that aggression that you that you you know you exude, you can't be over the top. So I just want him to know that, yeah, man, I know you're the champion. Had a great deal of respect for him. and showed him the, the utmost respect, but also I've come here to take what you've got because I think that I'm a better fighter than you, and that's mine. I've been working a long time for that. You've had your time now. I'm taking over, and that's the attitude you have to have as a fighter. If you don't have that, then you're probably in the wrong game. So when the bell went, I went out there and just started boxing his ears off. And I think I gave him a real shock because they didn't expect me to be as good a boxer as I was. Sit in this guy's chest and bang away. Get him to boxing outside because I think he didn't outbox him. And he was spot on because I started out boxing. Round, round one dropped. I, I nearly knocked him out cold in round one. Round two dropped him again, lifted him off his feet. 
and then just kept going and going. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was an unfortunate um, it was an unfortunate end to the fight because I clashed we clashed heads. So Danny, you get to the fifth round of the Bayer fight. He's got a cut over his right eye. Comes from a clash of heads, and they stop the fight and they disqualify you for headbutting. So what was going to be your world title doesn't end up being your world title. How do, how did you feel about that? Yeah, it was a pretty it was a disgraceful decision. We clashed heads, and they, before the fight, the referee said in the rules meeting to everyone, um, both sides, both camps, there's going to be a cut in this fight. Often, when a southpaw fights a, uh, an orthodox fighter, meaning a southpaw is a right hand, right arm forward, and orthodox left hand, left arm, so they're closer, and it becomes awkward. And often, you get head clashes when that happens. So the the, the referee said there's going to be cuts, there's going to be clashes. Um, you know, I'll be looking out for it, and I'll, I'll handle that situation appropriately. You had a rematch, didn't you? Two thousand and five, uh, and you had a late flurry. You went at him late, and uh, and and hit him a couple of good ones late, but he was uh, head on points and managed to hang on. Yeah, after that fight, he retired. The first fight, he retired, and I flew to, and then so they put the world championship up, the WC world championship up for myself and Eric Luca. And Eric Luca was a two-time champion as well, and the former champion who lost his world title to Marcus Bayer the fight before I fought him in controversial fashion in Germany as well. So they put the title up for me because Eric Luca was supposed to have an immediate rematch after that fight because there was controversy and mine was controversial. So they put up for myself and Eric because Marcus Bayer then went and retired. He then came out of retirement, and so then I had to rematch him. The WBC ordered the rematch back in Germany again. And I lost on a majority points um, loss. So uh, one judge had it a draw, and one judge had me losing by a point, and another judge had me losing by three points. I don't know which fight he was watching. I don't know which fight they're all watching, because I've never really said it publicly. But I, I go to my grave feeling very strongly that I also won the rematch because I heard him more, I landed more, I, I landed more power shots. I let, you know, just I just go look at the numbers and the punches that were thrown and landed. But the, and I nearly knocked him out in the twelfth round. It was a high drama, but didn't work out. But if you look at um, the first fight and the second fight, because I wasn't battering him the whole fight, like the first one was such a shock. You know, it was easy for the for the judges to give him the decision because he hung in there and he also landed some beautiful shots. Marcus Bayer. Full credit to Marcus Bayer. He is a, he was just doing his job as a fighter. It wasn't him that that that, that caused the the corruption. It was the system, unfortunately, and the promoters and the, and the system. Marcus Bay was a fine man. He passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. He was a great champion, and, and I'm glad that we kind of broke bread after the fights. And, and, and um, you know, I paid him a lot of respect, as I always do for my opponents. And um, he saw that, and I, um, you know, I'm glad that I, before he passed away, he knew my feelings to him because there was no animosity for me to him. It's just what it was. Now, you win a series of world titles. You have to go up through the weights, though, don't you? Because you, you, it starts to get too... Too difficult for you to to make the lower weights. Yeah, I, won, I had to move up to lower heavyweight, Mark, because I was really struggling to make super middleweight anymore. I, I, I was when I fought Bayer in two thousand and five in March, and you know, I weighed seventy five point nine um, kilos when I weighed in, and that was a real struggle. So I grew older. As you get older, you know, blokes especially they retain muscle, so muscle's harder to lose than fat, and um, the more muscle you have. Um, it's it's harder to, to drop the weight because you you, you can't just you got to waste your body you got to you got to you've basically got to go um, catabolic which means you know you got to eat yourself so um, to lose the weight was very difficult and for me being a puncher if you take a puncher's weight away that's one of the advantages of being a puncher is 
it weakens you. So if you're really light, if you're lighter than you should be and you're weak, then you can't punch as hard. That's one of your advantages gone. So I had to move up to light heavyweight. I won the WBA light heavyweight world title in Perth and then um, moved up to cruiserweight after that and won the IBO cruiserweight title a couple of times. So as, as I got older, I just had to kind of keep moving up because I couldn't keep losing the weight because I was, I was an old man for a fight. I was 43 and 11 months old when I had my last fight against Monday in the rematch at Adelaide Oval in 2017. So I was a fairly mature boxer, um, uh, fairly late, uh, sorry, an old boxer um, for, for a fighter. Um, but you know, I was always in, always trained harder than almost anyone I know, and I forged a reputation around the world as being a, a relentless worker in the gym and in the ring when I fought, and that was something I was very proud of. So I think I was able to have longevity in my career by looking after my body um, away from it. I always kept fit. I never let myself go. I was always surfing and training and keeping fit when I was away from fighting, when I wasn't fighting. And then when I was in training camp, the older I got, the less work I did. I just because I was I'd been so fit for so long, I was able to do less work and have a really good engine because my muscle memory was so strong because of how hard I've worked since I was 12 years old. We'll take a break there, Danny. We'll come back and we'll talk about the two Mundine fights in our last segment on Inspiring Sports Stories. We're brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little things because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And on Inspiring Sports Stories today, we're talking to boxing champion Danny Green. Danny, of course, you mentioned your rivalry with Anthony Mundine early in the interview, and no interview with you would be complete without talking about the rivalry. Tell us about the lead-up to the first Mundine fight. Yeah, it was bonkers, Mark. It was, you know, it's it's it'll it's still the. I don't think it'll ever get touched as far as pay per view numbers go. It was the biggest fight in Australian boxing history, and I, I kind of find myself saying that and going, "Did you just say that?" But uh, I like, yeah, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that like from Scarborough is involved one half of the biggest fight in Australian boxing history. It, it kind of you know it makes me very proud to be able to say that. Um, and I had no idea how big it was going to be, or you know, because I was just I was in the moment, I was living it, and but I had to. Unfortunately, I, the last time I fought a super middleweight before I fought Mundine at that weight was when I lost uh, the rematch in, in Germany to Marcus Bayer in 2005. So it was about 16 months, 15 months before I fought that weight. And I said, I'm never fighting that weight again. I can't do it. But that was where the opportunity was, a super middleweight to fight Mundane. So I had to, I didn't have to, but I took the opportunity. It was mad if I didn't. Biggest, biggest, you know, paid out of my career up to date. So, um, took the opportunity and I did a really tough. I had to shed a lot of weight. I had to lose 10 kilograms off my frame. I was walking around then at about 86. I had to get down. I weighed in at 75.9 and I was I was on less than 3% body fat. So when you have a, a scan, you know, the, the old calipers they used at football clubs back in the day, we, we used a, an x-ray machine called a DEXA machine, which back then was new technology. And it runs a scan over your whole body back and forth. It takes about five minutes. Gives you a readout of your fat density, your bone density, and your muscle density, e.g., how many grams of each kilograms of each component you've got. Worked out that once I get down to this weight, I've got to then shed another four kilograms of muscle. So I've got to go catabolic, meaning I've got to eat myself, and then um, I will be down to less than three, just on three percent body fat. So by the time I weighed in, I was under three percent, which is really, really unhealthy for for an for an athlete, let alone a, a, a you know a combat sport athlete that requires. And you're going to have to have force and power 
and um, and 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 sustenance. And I didn't have any of them when, I, when the bell went. But that was my choice. I'm not blaming that on Chalk or blaming on the on the loss. Chalk, Chalk beat me that night. He um he, he got the bickies and um, uh, but you know I think he should have knocked me out. He should have put my own two or three rounds. You know if I had a guy that I knew was so drained and so so emaciated, I would have jumped on him from the get go and put him away. But full credit to Chalk, he won the fight. He did what he said he was going to do. And then um, unfortunately we had a we had an immediate rematch clause in there. Yep. Um, and that never that never took place. We didn't rematch for almost ten over ten and a half years till the, till till the rematch took place in two thousand and seventeen. So it was unfortunate because he had this his brain was wired differently in that back then. He wanted to go to America and take on Floyd Mayweather, and the the bloke was delirious um, and and deluded. So uh, he waited and waited and waited and waited. And everyone said, "Why don't you fight him?" I said, well, "What do you want to do? I can't hold a gun to the guy's head and make him get in the ring." I've done everything I can within my powers. I even came out of retirement, stayed boxing to get the rematch. So I was, I was probably not going to fight again after I fought Shane Cameron back in 2012 when I won the the IBO cruiserweight title in Melbourne again. Um, I was almost going to say that's enough. It was a great fight to go out and beat a really tough, rugged Kiwi and a really, really good scrap and for the title. So that's a good way to go out. But in the back of my head, it's like, no, I really want to have this rematch. I, I want to beat Anthony Mundane because I know I'm a better fighter than him. And I really want to have the, the rematch. So a couple of years in between that, then I fought again in 2015, again in 16, then we had the fight in 2017. Eventually, he realised, I've got nowhere to go. This is by far the biggest fight I'm going to have pay-wise. Pay people go, oh, you only do it for the money. Well, I say to the person who says that to me, I said, what do you go to work for? Are you a volunteer? <laughs> I said, no. I said, well, you go to work for the same reason, to get paid. Well, I'm a prize fighter. And not only not only is that what I do to get paid, but I'm probably going to get brain damage every time I get punched in the face. So I want to make sure that it's as lucrative a fight as I can. So it makes sense. And you see them going, oh, okay, I get it now. Of course you fight for money because that's what you are. You're a prize fighter. So it was the biggest fight you can have that he, that he could possibly have, um, you know, uh, anywhere in the world, the rematch with me. So he eventually agreed to sign on. <clears throat> and... Um, Chuck and I genuinely didn't see eye to eye. We're, we're, we're not mates now, but we have a lot of respect and love for each other because we've both enhanced each other's careers and we both enhanced each other's earning capacity as fighters. So for that, I'll always be grateful to him and I know that he'll be grateful to me for that because as fighters, you know, we did that for each other and we didn't mean to, but that's just what happened. So we both know and acknowledge and respect that about each other. And also, you know, you, it's weird. My people go... How do you, why do you like the guy you fight or why do you guys hug and laugh and you know, touch gloves after fight as if you're mates? It's like, well, because you become endeared towards a man, you know, during that battle. You know, in that, in that battle, you, you, you kind of, you, you grow respect from what's going on. But in the first, in the second fight, in the first round, when he, when he struck me from behind after in the first minute of the fight, he should have been immediately disqualified. The referee was an absolute imbecile and was out of his depth, didn't know what was going on and should have immediately disqualified Chalk. And I'm glad that he didn't because there would have been riots in pubs around the country and there would have been a riot. At, there was a, it was a very, very volatile crowd at Adelaide Oval. So if that had been a disqualification, then it would have been a, there would have been a lot of trouble. And I fear that people may have got hurt in that, in that instance. So when I got hit from behind with both my arms pinned, the referee had my right arm pinned and his other hand on my chest and Chalk had my other left arm pinned from behind and he threw a left hook that would have, you know, knocked a lot of people out. You could see it on tape. It was a, it was a massive shot. It should have knocked me out, but I was, you know, tough enough and I was so determined to win this fight. Waited 10 years for it. 
that I that I kept going, and the referee actually said, "I'm going to call it," meaning I'm going to call it off after I saw the doctors. And I I yelled at him and swore at him. I remember swearing and yelling at him, going, "Because all I really remember is no." And I said, "I'm okay." And kind of fudge it. I'm okay and to go on. And because the referee was is a human being, he's got emotion too. He's got a lot of adrenaline. He's in the moment, the crowd's spinning out. He let it go on because he he could feel that if he stops this, there's going to be a riot. So we let the fight go on. We kept fighting, and um, you know I got the decision. I was too strong for him mentally, even though I was severely concussed in the first minute. I, I outlanded him two to one. I um I think I gave him maybe round seven and round maybe round seven maybe round nine. He could have shaded out round eight. The rest were mine, and you can see it in the in the punch stats after the fight. I clearly outpunched him, outlanded him, and and won the fight. And the fact that one judge had it a draw was just. It's mesmerising, but I know the reason because right behind that judge, who is, is a human being as well, there was about twenty of Chock's crew, and they were all you know swearing, swearing and yelling and you know, you know, getting into him. And um, you know, I think the judge was uh, was compromised in that instance. But that's life, mate. That's that's boxing. And um, I got the decision, and uh, it's a, it's a great way to, for me to finish my career on a high against you know my um, my rival and uh, you know we got one each and we always laugh about it. He said, "Let's do the third. I said, "Chuck, we're too old, mate." He said, "If you if you'd agreed to do the rematch in the first instance in the first year or two, then we could have had three fights, no problem. But you know you left it too late. You know, you know I was a month off turning forty four when we fought again, so that's too old. And I promised my old man I'd never fight again. So um, that's it, mate. We never fight again. And but in, in saying that, he, he he always tells everyone he's a better fighter than me." And I'll tell everyone that I'm a better fighter than him. And that's where the rivalry is genuine because we both believe we're better fighters than each other. And I'll go to my grave knowing I'm a better fighter than Chuck and he will too. So that's where it's it's genuine. But there's now, you know, as you get older, mate, you're softening, you're mellow a bit. And we have a, a laugh and we see each other and shake hands and hug and have a bit of a chat. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll break more bread as the future goes on um, because I have a lot of respect for the man, as we spoke about before off air, Mark, two-time, um, you know, world champion. And a premiership player in NRL, um, two very, very tough, arduous sports that he excelled in and succeeded in. You know, nothing but respect to me. Tell us about your family life, Danny. Um, yeah, <laughs> my family's. Um, anyone who knows me and my family know that we are. Um, we're like uh, the, the Osbournes. Uh, it, coming over to our house is like watching a series of one an episode of the Osbournes. Um, uh, it's fairly unconventional and. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, you know, I'm a bit. I'm a bit. Um, anyone knows me knows me that uh, I would say I'm a bit bonkers and a bit crackers. Um, but it's it's always exciting. We're always up and down, and we're always doing things. But I'm just blessed, Mark, to have um, you know uh, met a lady that um, you know she's been through a lot in my career as well. She had to put up with a lot of a lot of crap throughout my career as a boxer. I was away for a long time, and you know she was you know raising our kids. Um, you know when I was away in training camp for six and eight weeks on her own and. A yeah, very strong lady, a very very determined strong lady, and um, in boxing she's had to, you know just she's kind of just never ever wanted to be in the spotlight, never wanted a picture taken, doesn't want to know about any of the stories, just wants to be you know my 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 wife and and, and the mother to our kids and and a friend to her friends and and a, and a sister and a, and and a daughter and so you know she's a, a an incredible person that's been half and half of my career. She's the reason that. We've been able to have successes because of her as well, not just me. And um, you know, the older I get, the more the more I acknowledge that. When I slow down and take a bit of time to reflect, you know, I realise how important she's been to our family. And she's the catalyst to our family, as far as um, you know, keep the glue that holds us together. And my two kids, some I'm blessed to have two healthy kids. 
um, uh, 21 and 15, and um, you know, been been in my obviously grown up around the sport and and just grown up around boxing. So they love the game, they love the sport, and they loved what I did. And um, I'm just very, very, very lucky and very blessed to have some, you know, uh, a family unit that um, support me and love me and that I love and support as well. And um, yeah, that's all I can really say, mate. I, I, I'm just a regular dad. I change nappies and I'm just a regular Joe. People think I'm something different because my face might be in the paper or that kind of crap. But I'm just a regular Joe like you, mate. You know, I change nappies. I do this. I do that. I, it's just I'm just a regular Joe, mate, and um, I'm 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 very very happy and content. I've got the same mates I had before. Um, you know, I started boxing. You know, mates I've had since I was nine years old. I've made a lot of friends along the journey um, of my boxing career and met some wonderful people. But I've always maintained the same friendship group um, within my you know, group of mates that I've had for a very for, for now close to forty years. So that makes me very proud to know that. I'm still friends with guys that I knew before I even, you know, became a professional fighter and had this crap going on in the, in the limelight. Um, it's not really who I am, mate. I, I've enjoyed being away from the spotlight since I finished fighting because I'd rather just, you know, serve as much as I can, stay fit, concentrate and work and my family and just be a regular, be a regular Joe. Danny Green. And I think the best way to sum up Danny, if you're using a good Aussie term, is he's a goer. Always has been a goer, still a goer. You can hear that come through in his voice talking to him. This has been Inspiring Sports Stories. It's been brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.